My name is Sylvia. Are there any people here who have never been to Spirit Rock before? Oh, that's terrific. Well, first of all, welcome. What's your name? Chuck. 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 Karen. Karen. Alice. Alice. Karen. Haktiba. Okay. Ina. Debbie. Betsy. Alyssa. There are two reasons for uh, my asking you your name. One is throughout the day you'll notice it's my habit to ask people their names. I try to learn them. Um, also, it's a way that we have uh, as a, um, something like a custom of manifesting our presence in the room by saying our name. Before we go home this afternoon, we'll all say our name together in some way or another as a formal closing. We don't have very much in the way of, uh, we don't do very much. There is certainly in the Buddhist tradition a great deal of formal ritual. We don't do a lot of it here. But one of the rituals we do do, or I do do with the people who come, is I like to have people say their name just to manifest their presence and say, here I am. So now you've manifested your presence. It didn't accidentally make you a Buddhist. It just manifested <laughs> your presence. Um, and for, so for all of those people, this is the first of these four series that you've come to. This is a four series on Brahma Viharas. How many people, this is the fourth of the series that they've come to? Ta-da! The third. Ta-da! The second. Okay, and for how many the first? Okay. How many people are psychotherapists doing this for continuing education units? Great. So am I, by the way. Uh, I'm very pleased. uh, that uh, we now are credentialed to do this uh, for two reasons. First of all, for the obvious one of uh, I like to get my continuing education units here and I like to teach them uh, and I like to feel it, uh, especially the people who are connected here and who are therapists and many people in uh, mindfulness tradition are also psychotherapists. They fit very well together because both of them are traditions of practices of paying a lot of attention. So it's wonderful to be able to be doing a practice that you enjoy and are connected with and be getting the CE units. And I also think it's a wonderful thing that uh, the state, which means the larger mainstream culture, also recognizes the connection between this uh, spiritual practice, or so to speak, labeled spiritual practice of paying attention, is actually um, a um, a factor in emotional well-being and uh, and psychological health, and that they're not two separate <coughs> things. That uh, the, this fits close enough. I think you could think of it as. Uh, um, fitting into the medical model. The Buddha called what he taught good medicine. So this is very good medicine. It's medicine for the heart. It heals the heart. 
And it's medicine for the heart in two ways because the tradition teaches both a lifestyle of living that's a healthy way of living, doesn't um, causes you bring attention to how you live so that you don't complicate your mind with guilt and alarm and remorse. And it also because it provides an effective way of paying attention so that uh, you see clearly what you're doing and you make wise choices. Also because it uh, has a built-in system of um, moral inventory so that when we, I haven't seen clearly and I have made mistakes, I'll catch it pretty soon so before it's compounded itself and I'll have a chance to make amends. So I think what we'll do today is we'll talk about how those all come up because uh, many people were not here for all four. Uh, we'll probably begin with a um, very short review of the four Brahma Viharas. The equanimity teaching is the fourth of the Brahma Viharas and in a sense it's also the first of them. It's the first and the last, and it's the one that contains all of the other three. So it'll be important to have a little bit of an overview of that. Throughout the day, um, although there are a number of people here uh, with uh, uh, CE units in mind, there are a number of people, who are the people who are not psychotherapists? How many people are not here? We have about half and half. Um, I want to try to remember to relate it over to uh, work in a psychotherapeutic venue. Uh, but you know, I think that life is uh, one long interconnected web of relationships uh, in which we either interact in a way that's wholesome for both people or not. So I have a hard time sometimes teasing out what's a therapeutic relationship from what's a life relationship. I don't see them as so much different. I often think that what I do as a psychotherapist is really um, good reparenting of people. Do you feel that way? Mm. Just provide a good, new, wholesome way of living with people. Um, it's interesting, too, just as a parenthetical thought, it just occurs to me, so many of my friends who are therapists and very good ones will say, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a very good therapist, and then I lose it in my personal relationships. You know? <laughs> Somehow we, and, and, and it doesn't actually surprise me very much because perhaps we don't have quite so much at stake. We're not so emotionally invested in uh, the particular relationships that we work with as therapists uh, being um, emotionally sustaining to us. So because there's somebody else's emotional sustaining, we can be a little bit more balanced, see a little bit more clearly, and be a little bit more helpful. And then when it's our own relationships, then we're much more, um, we, have, we have the sense that there's much more imperative and there's much more at stake don't see sometimes so clearly. We have to go to other therapists to help us see clearly about our own. <sighs> equanimity, the word equanimity. 
in Pali, uh, the word that's translated as equanimity is upayaka. And a better translation of it is balance. And I like to, I'd like to begin the day with that reflection of um, the word balance. First of all, as the, um, with the sense that um, when we hear that it's possible to have, to cultivate balance, well, let's cultivate balance. It's the suggestion that balance is a cultivatable quality of the mind, that it's possible for the mind to be balanced. When, when we give definitions for mindfulness, we normally say mindfulness is the balanced recognition of what's true in the moment. That's really what mindfulness is. It means knowing what's true and being able to hold it in a certain amount of balance. Not being too so alarmed with it that we have to move away from it and pretend it's not there. Not being so intrigued by it or um, seduced by it that we have to rush after it and get it and make it stay. Be able to have a certain amount of uh, easy balance in the mind that says, okay, this is happening. Just at this moment that I tell you that sentence, I have a, a memory of a story I heard years ago that I didn't get. So that suddenly occurred to me, maybe I get it right now. So I'll tell it to you and then I'll see if I get it and you can see if you get it. Uh, it's a story about, the Zen tradition story, of um, a, um, it's a legend, I'm sure, of a, a young woman in a small village uh, in Japan who becomes pregnant. And... Uh, the man who fathers the child, who, to whom she's not yet married, not wanting to take on the responsibility, flees the town, the village, and she is left having the child. And uh, not to uh, bring trouble to the young man with whom she thinks she's in love, she says uh, the father of the child is the uh, Zen monk who lives in the temple up on top of the mountain. And uh, so the townspeople take the new baby and take it up to the temple. Do you all know this story? Mm -hmm. Knock on the door. Here comes the Zen monk. At, uh, and uh, oh, he opens the door. And they say, uh, we hear that this is your baby. Is that so? And he says, so you take care of it. And they give it to him. And he takes it. Three years later, the uh, father of the child returns to the village, having put his life together a little bit more, comes back, uh, retakes up a relationship with the woman who was the mother of the child, and fesses up to the fact that it was, in fact, he who fathered the child. And so the same townspeople go back up the mountain, knock, 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 on the monastery door, here comes the Zen monk, uh, who has all the while been raising the child, and who opens the door and they say, we hear it's not your child. He says, that's so. And uh, says, so give it to us back. 
so the parents can have it. Okay, here it is. So that's a story. <laughs> so I heard that story probably 25 years ago. What do you think it's about? Want to say something about that story? What do you think? Yeah. It sounds like it's less about the literal truth to the monk as to whether he fathered the child with the truth of the infant meeting the caretaker and is happy to do it. And then when the actual father says, no, actually I fathered the child and I'm happy to do it now, he's fine with that truth also. Uh-huh. Okay, that's great. What's your name? Jules. Jules, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Yeah, think about that, okay. Who has another idea? Yeah? I'm very happy to use the word accepting as well. This is so helpful for me. I thought I had a new idea, but everybody has a better idea. What's your name? Fran. Fran, thank you very much. Uh, so for if you didn't hear Fran saying the accepting of what's happening, that uh, the monk hadn't planned on that, but here it comes, and without a judgment, is this going to be good or bad, accepts it. And then here comes the parents, now sending the word, we'll take it back and raise it. Um, accept things, okay. It's, I'm particularly interested because there's, there, there's a way in the, uh, in the uh, Paramita literature describing different characteristics, perfected, perfections of the mind, uh, that one of the characteristics of uh, equanimity is accepting. Say, okay, that's, that's what's happening. So accepting is a very interesting word to put in. Accepting in the sense of who can know if this is for good or for bad or the larger implications. We think we know mostly. Mm -hmm. What else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Miriam is bringing up the question of attachment, and uh, um, what do we we could think throughout the day of how much what it really means attached. Uh, could we? One of the interesting questions that I think about often is: Could we be passionate people, but not? Um, Troubled with attachments. Would we lose all our passion if we didn't have attachments? Yeah. What if you find, I mean, I don't want to be the devil's advocate here, but I mean, it's one extreme to the other. What if you find out that uh, 
the clotting taking the cell that introduces clotting is incest being the child down the hill or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your name? Dan. Dan. Are you one of the people who's a psychotherapist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You don't work for CPS or something. <laughs> no, no, but this is a very important question. I'm just teasing a little bit. It's a very important question. Uh, what other, what, what, what information do we have available to us at any time? Is, is I think a, the tremendously important question that you're bringing up because. Um, one of the uh, one of the components of equanimity, it seems to me, is clearly wisdom. Now, and uh, and Fran had said, you know, we sometimes make decisions, but we don't know what's good or not good, and we decide something is good or not good just on the basis of uh, uh, nothing. We just make up an idea this will be good or not good. Uh, but if we have information one way or the other, and some information very compelling, then it's not quite such a, um, it's not a decision based on a, on a, on a personally made up view. So that there is something about balancing uh, uh, the fact that we can't know everything with sometimes we do know something. And sometimes we know enough to perhaps Prejudices, one way or the other. So it's a very important thing to bring up. Yeah. And what struck me was this is a three-year-old child. Yeah. I mean, you told a simple get sense story. If it can be the child over, it's like, you know, it, my question would be, what is it like for the child? Like, is it a monk living in town with parents? Yeah. yeah. It's not the point of the story, but you're right. You know, again, we are taking uh, every time we talk about um, any of these old legends of Buddhism, they're 2,500 years old or 2,000 years old. They come from a context with a different psychology than we do. We think everything through the lens of modern psychology. It is our context. We can't somehow unthink it. Uh, um, even for that not everybody here is a psychotherapist, I think it is really the, the, um, the context of the last hundred years. You know, when somebody says, um, when you meet someone and you get to know them well, and uh, they find out something about you, uh, perhaps... Um, that uh, you don't like to ride in tunnels or something. And then they say, oh, you know, I once knew someone that didn't like to ride in tunnels. Why do you not like to ride in tunnels? And then you say, oh, well, when I was a child, da 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 And then we have a story about my father used to always drive. We had to drive through a certain tunnel to go home, and my father drank too much, and it was dark, and I was always worried about his driving ability. And maybe it's in the genes. Or maybe it's because we were born under, you know, Leo rising. 
or you know maybe it's one of the humors or you know maybe it's a past life something had happened to us in a coal mine you know that depending on what the context is of our life we put another reason on it but all of us are very much um, framed by having lived in a in a psychological context not to say I would I don't have that same sense <clears throat> someone uh, Miriam brought it up before Ruth when she said uh, you know, a three-year-old child, hey, you know, you could get attached to it. Here's a variation of that story, um, and then we'll sit a little bit, because I think everybody's almost here. It's another Zen story of uh, a certain marauding um, band of uh, samurai, in the time of marauding bands of samurai, <laughs> coming down the... Uh, through Japan and coming into a particular village where uh, having re uh, wrought havoc in uh, the cities on the way, uh, coming into a particular village where the word gets out that this particular band of warriors with this particular very aggressive leader is now coming into the town and uh, everybody fleeing, and even the pe townspeople all flee, and the monks all flee, and the one abbot stays, and um, the lead samurai comes in, and is incensed that the abbot has not fled in fear because he's very proud of his um, terrifying reputation. And he says, um, why are you here? He said, don't you know that I'm the sort of person that could uh, run you through in a moment with my sword without batting an eye? And uh, Abbott is presumed to have said back, and I, sir, am the type of person that could be run through with a sword in a moment without batting an eye. And at that point, according to the story, the uh, warrior puts down his sword and pays homage and becomes a disciple and probably gets enlightened. I don't remember the end of the story. But, but it's an equanimity story. It's an equanimity story. It's also a wisdom story. There's no one who dies. But it's less complicated because there's not a child involved in that. <laughs> but I have a little trouble with that story as well. Do you? What's your trouble with that story? <laughs> oh, so what's your name? Philia is, is suggesting that it's an improbable story. If it's your way all your life to be warring, it's preposterous to think a person could stop in that moment. I even have another thought about why that story is not my story exactly. Is it yours? Yeah? I'll tell you why this might be. Okay. Okay. Because I've heard that one before, and it had a very transforming effect on me. Yeah. Uh huh. That, that I can have that stance in the world of, you know, being overpowering, overbearing, 
What's your name? Katiba. Okay. Yes. Yes. My name is Sally. Even though I'm back with this, the first story. All right. Show, this can be what's true in the moment. Yes. Yes. One, one moment it was his child, and one moment it wasn't. Uh huh. Yeah, um, these are all very helpful to me. We're going to get, because equanimity, here it is. Well, I'll tell you why it's helpful. So now, because we've come around and around and around. The, uh, the definition or the explanation, the text explanation, and my experiential trust is that my ability to maintain any kind of a balance rests on my ability to feel to trust the truth of karma, the, the karma of things, the things are the way they are, for whatever reason, that, that my actions in this moment will influence the karma of the rest of all time. But at this moment, what we inherit is the entire karma of this situation. Um, but someone else had one more thing to say. Now, see, tell me your name. Bertie. The unpredictability. Um, well, we should say this one story more than. Uh, <laughs> uh, or we, could, we have a whole day. We don't have to tell it all this first second. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll do it after we sit. This is a good story. Um, Okay, we'll do it right after we sit. But somebody else was way... <laughs> Rasika. Well, both stories. I've just recently come to be aware of a whole new meaning of equanimity for myself. It's kind of like what you said about karma. It's my ability to hold it all. Yes. And um, the, these two stories are talking about equanimity being kind of sort of a flat line. Mm-hmm. And without the passion, without... Mm-hmm the anger or the, the sadness or the feeling mm-hmm. and um, as I come to understand equanimity better, it's to be able to hold it all. Mm-hmm. And so that's what disturbs me about those two stories. They're too uh, passionless. Uh-huh. They're too flat. They have a high level of um, they have a very high level of tranquility in them. Uh, that in fact, if if you if we were to uh, construct the chart, uh, actually I am these days working on a chart of what are the factors that make up any one of these particular capacities, like the capacity for equanimity. I think it has a certain amount of um, composure in it, or tranquility, and a certain amount of wisdom. For the wisdom to be there, you have to need a certain amount of steadiness, because otherwise the wisdom flies out the window, you get hysterical. If you have too much composure, or too much calm, or a lot of, and too much for one person is not going to be enough for another person, 
a lot of, it could come out a story that sounds flat. And then the truth is that for all of us, we have different natures, some of us more passionate than others. I really think, uh, when I think about the people I know who have an ability to roll with the punches, kind of really to be the sort of colloquial way of saying they have equanimity, some people grow up in families that said, that's the way it is. What are you going to do? That's life, you know? You, you, you can't know what's going to happen. And nobody was a big meditator or heard of the Buddha or thought about it or was a philosopher. There are people who said, you know, what can you do? That's the way things happen. And there are other people who say, ah, and fight about everything. And I think it's in the different, I think it comes in, the, in different DNAs. It's different genes. Somebody else wants to say something. I had been asking someone, this was someone who studied a Suzuki Roshi, and I had been very stressed about something, and I was saying, well, what do you think? Is it this or is it that? And he told me that story. And he told me the child was an adult when they came back, which helped me a lot. I think, I think <laughs> the one thing missing is that this is in the context of the time it was told, and, and you know, child welfare was not big in Japan. And the, you know, so I think that sometimes our mind tends to it's interesting to see people's reaction because it was that tendency to towards duality. Well, did he do the right thing or the wrong thing? The right thing or the wrong thing? Should he give him, you know, where our minds tend to go? And I think this is what this, this gentleman was trying to tell me when he told me the story. And he also told me the samurai one, too. Mm -hmm. And then one about somebody's face getting stolen and mm -hmm. the whole village. And then the ones I said, oh, no, I gave it to mm -hmm. that one. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was the idea of non-duality, that the monk, wasn't saying, well, am I being accused of something? Am I being, that that didn't come up. It was mm -hmm. just, is that so? Like, just looking at what is happening here and being handed a child. What, and the way we ended our conversation with this gentleman that told me the story is I said, so this goes back to do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. In a non-dual sense, mm -hmm. without a judgment or mm -hmm. attachment of right and wrong, which we're constantly battling in our society. Um, you know, I, I was very upset when I, I think, you know, on Wednesday, I was upset because I was trying to get some help for a child who, whose mother can get money for every baby she has, but nothing for drug therapy. And I, I was set up fighting it. And I felt very dual, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like I hate all the people who care about it. And I had to go come to that sense of what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Not fighting these people. So the monk is saying, I'm not going to fight the townspeople, not my baby. Mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. And then when they come back, and I assumed, when I heard it was actually a three-year-old who gave back, that of course we knew that the, the real father would be good, and it, you know, we just have to assume that and mm -hmm. not go there, and that really the truth of the story, which is, things aren't always about us or judgment. Mm -hmm. We look at each moment with compassion and what needs to be done, and mm -hmm. that is to me equanimity. Mm -hmm. So that, and what's your name? Nancy. Nancy. One more. I think it goes also to the idea of responsibility for other people and the idea of being everybody else's mother or in this case everyone's father. So I think it's very considered that. Mm-hmm. Do you know that basic Buddhist concept of everybody's mother and everybody's father? Um, 
It's a, it's a lovely, I think, poetic way. Well, let me not say poetic because some people will see it literally. That we all at some time or another have been each other's mother or father or sister or brother or child is one way of saying it. Another way of saying it is given the interdependency of all things, given the fact that nothing happens independent of causes and conditions and nothing that we do doesn't create causes and conditions rippling out infinitely. Everything that everybody does has something to do with everybody else's experience. So that you think about who is responsible for this. Everyone is responsible for it. Who gets the merit for it? Everybody gets the merit for it. If I, if I, if I teach in any kind of a good way today, it's not because I did it well. It'd be because, uh, of, it'd be because of all the teachers who told me something good, and their lives, and their parents who bore them and gave them some kind of education, and uh, my parents who gave me a certain amount of good genes that lasted and good health. And uh, it'd be really the karma of everything, if anything comes. However it comes out, if it comes out good or not good, it's the karma of everything. And it's wonderfully freeing. Um, it's really, I think, the, uh, the meaning of uh, the, the Taoist verse, the person of wisdom is not affected by praise or blame. It's not because uh, they've uh, forgotten the difference between praise and blame. It doesn't even mean that they don't feel um, uh, disappointed if things didn't go right or as well as they hoped or pleased if they did. But they're not affected by it because they know it's not theirs. It's not theirs. It's everybody's. It's all everybody's. In that uh, place, I think it would be a good place to stop we have a little energy. That was a good way to begin. I like that. So far, we're doing good. <laughs> Our karma up to now is good. Um, unless you're dying to have one more comment that you needed to say to keep your equanimity. Uh, yeah, there you go. My name is Margaret. I've been thinking about the mother in your first story, Uh-huh. And also, in the, in the second story, the village was here. In the first story, the village was the, the purveyor of the power, the city of society, and that the criteria was ownership uh-huh. in both in for for the father and the mother, and and the mother. And so we're 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 all feeling for the, you know, oh how could she or how could he, father even how how could the monks give up? It's all about. Oh, you know, owning. Like, I think it's about actually not owning. I think it's giving that up. Uh-huh. The ownership. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, interesting when we think about all the ways that we could put this around and how much of it is, is culturally, condi- how much of our opinions 
are culturally conditioned for what we hear. Uh, what's your name again? Margaret. Margaret, thank you. Now, one of the other things that I spend a lot of time thinking about these days is how to distinguish the difference between uh, what's a truth and what's a view. You know, it's so uh, uh, so complicated, uh, or it's so easy for me. It might not be complicated for you, but it is easy for me to mistake a view for a truth, um, and to not be able to see that it's a relative truth, relative to a certain based on an opinion. Somebody told me uh, at some meeting the other day, someone who had years and years and years of Zen practice, these were medium Buddhist teachers, she said uh, the first thing she was assigned by a particular teacher were the faith teachings of the third patriarch, the first line of which is the great way is not difficult for those who have... Uh, 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 who those who for those who have a preference, and uh, somewhere on a little bit further in that, it says uh, to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. She said, you know, I didn't even get up to the opinion one. She said, it's years. I'm still working on. To, the right way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The preferences are based on opinions. <coughs> so interesting. What I'd like to do is for us to sit a little bit and do contemplative practice that uh, will do different instructions for mindfulness throughout the day that will cultivate, I hope, the different qualities that go to make up equanimity. And the first of them we'll work on is the quality of composure or calm, tranquility, steadiness. What I think is really so elegant about paying attention practice is depending on what one chooses to pay attention to, can really cultivate different kinds of mind and heart states. Can cultivate composure by picking out something like the breath, which is, uh, as long as we're in health, so dependable and so ordinary. It's so plain. Uh, Even when we say, I'm taking a breath, it's not really, I mean, we're being breathed. We don't, the, if you think about it, there's no I that keeps on telling you every minute, take a breath in, push it out, take a breath in, push it out. All day long, we are breathed by the biosphere, by the whole of the natural world, by the trees that are breathing in harmony with us. And by letting your attention rest, letting the attention rest, 
in something that's plain and ordinary and reliable and repetitive, non-conflictual, what happens is that the mind becomes uh, somewhat composed and relaxed. I think it probably has something fundamentally to do with I don't know, probably lots of things. Probably the closing of the eyes and the cutting down of stimuli. Probably the simple repetitiveness of breath is so much like itself, one breath after another. People do brainwave studies of breath meditations, they're not so different from listening to uh, the sound of waves at a seashore and keeping the attention on that. Not so different, turns out, from knitting. Because it's the same repetitive movement. Over and over and over again. Plain. I'd like to suggest that as you sit, that your body be as comfortable as it can be in an alert position. What I mostly do, particularly if I'm wanting to pay attention to the breath, is I allow the breath to present itself to me rather than go looking for it. And the way that I do that is I sit quite quietly. And I do something else for a while. I listen. I use the first minute or two of my sitting just to listen.
probably notice it if you close your eyes and just listen. Then your whole body presents itself to you a little bit more. Something like a Polaroid photo that comes more into view as you wait. There's always the same body there with the same body sensation. But when your eyes are open and you're listening and thinking, not likely to feel your body so much. Eyes closed and sitting quietly, you do. So it begins to be a little bit cause and effect meditation as well. Begin to see because of this, then that. Because of that, then this. Because I closed my eyes and sat quietly. My body is more apparent to me. And then if you sit quietly, you'll find that by and by your breath will be the most predominant aspect of your experience. Make sure your whole body move as the breath comes in and out. Something like a balloon filling up and then relaxing. Or maybe you feel it more specifically in the chest or in the belly, even around the nostrils. Wherever you feel your breath, let your attention rest there. We'll sit perhaps for 12 minutes. Not a long time, but it's enough time for you to allow the attention to focus for a while, just on composure, just on the rhythmicity of breath in and out. And from time to time, as it occurs to you that something was happening but isn't anymore. Like perhaps you were really alert and now you're sleepy. Or you were sleepy and now you're really alert. Or you were calm and now you're restless, or restless and now you're calm. Perhaps you could notice for yourself that things have a way of changing. They're this way and then they're another way. Then they're this way. And then there another way. 
that experience keeps on changing. Not in ways you plan usually. We plan to stay awake and steady. There are two more instructions, and then I'll be quiet. One of them is that people find it quite helpful to say to themselves in words, quietly in their minds, what their experience is. Breath is coming in, breath is coming out. I was alert, now I'm sleepy. I was sleepy, now I'm alert. Whatever. Body itches, now it stopped. It's helpful to say in words to yourself. The other instruction, which is always a good meditation instruction, is to try to smile a little bit. Not grim. Uh, I'd like for us to talk a little bit about your experience with this period of sitting and uh, we'll have some questions and answers. I'd like to teach you just a little bit of a theoretical overview of the four Brahma Viharas, how they work together. And I'd like for us to sit just a little bit more time at, before 10.30. And so if you need to anticipate when are we going to stand up, we'll stand up at 10.30. So if that's all right with you. There's a silver Acura, uh, 4EAF787, that needs to move. Thank you. Uh, So, how was that experience of sitting? Do you have any question about the instruction, or did you notice anything about your experience? <laughs> it was good. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. What? <laughs> Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. 
Well, two reasons why, Miriam, as I'll say it out loud, um, the reason for the instruction, tell yourself what is happening. Uh, there are several reasons for doing it and justifications from the sutta in which the Buddha taught this. But at the, when I first heard that instruction, speak to yourself in words, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm feeling sleepy, I'm feeling alert. I took a very, very long time, like years, before I actually took that seriously and did it as an instruction, because it sounds a little bit idiotic. Why should I tell myself what's happening? It's me that it's happening to. I know what's going on. I speak English. I don't need subtitles on my experience. And it took me a very long time for me to develop that particular habit of, in fact, talking to myself. But it has a very good effect of, first of all, directing your attention to the experience so it's as close as it can be to it. Also, so that you stay present because you can think you're present and be half asleep. So that in order for you to formulate words, you need to be somewhat alert. In order for you to notice, really, that things are changing. If I say to myself, I'm very sleepy, I'm very sleepy, I can hardly do this, I'm so sleepy, I'm awake, then I notice things change. But it's just some, not something that just happened and I'm not, I have no awareness of it. I have an awareness of it because I've been keeping a log of it, so to speak. So I think it's quite helpful. You don't, people sometimes, I, one doesn't have to do it every single second and not on every single breath, but with a certain regularity, it really tends to keep the attention awake. Yeah. I like the idea of being breathed. Uh-huh. Well, what I think of, it has a very nice religious context, but first of all, Buddhism is a religion. <laughs> I like the idea of thinking that we are, we are ever, that creation is breathing itself. That in fact, um, we and the trees are giving each other artificial respiration all the time, so we need all of us to be here, and them as well. Um, one of the reasons that I like to, to say that so much as part of our uh, practice here together is when I think uh, it's not I am breathing, but uh, I am breathed, um, I realize how much uh, experience is um, awareness of relationships arising and disappearing all the time, but not of separate selves. So from that point of view, it comes out to be quite a doorway into a dharma understanding. No separate selves, only relationships happening all the time. But thank you very much. I also discovered that it makes it very much easier, the, just the logistics of sitting. If I think to myself, I need to be bringing my, my attention to my breath, then I have to be working really hard and taking a breath and bringing the atten my attention to my breath. I literally sit differently. If I think to myself, breathing is happening and awareness of breathing is present, I don't lean forward. 
literally or figuratively into the next breath. I really, I really do sit back and look at that all by itself. Magic. Breaths go in and out, in and out. For as long as I'm fortunate enough to be alive, at some point, all of us who have been present at the death of somebody knows that for some period of time, the breath goes in and goes out and goes in and goes out and goes in and goes out. Body is viable. And then it goes in and goes out and it doesn't go in anymore. And that, that period of breath goes in and out and in and out is banded. You know, it's it's, it's um, finite. There's something about that awareness, which we all know in a certain way, that when we feel it, in it, for myself, when I have felt it sitting, and when the mind has been really quiet, look at this. It's so much of a gift, you know, so much of an awareness that just, like if someone gives you a great box of chocolates and you eat up one at a time, and you know at a certain point the box is going to be gone, doesn't make the chocolate, you know, it's just still wonderful chocolate. Maybe it makes it more precious. There's a finite amount of breath. I think if there were a thing to be learned from that, it would not to be... Uh, it's just the finiteness of it. And we have a certain amount of moments in which we can choose how we'll be in that moment, awake to it or not resisting it or not, suffering or not. Sometimes I think the story is really quite simple. Like we're probably uh, something like computers programmed with only zeros and ones. We only have two choices in any moments. Uh, should I accept this or resist it? Accept or resist? Accept or resist? It's really the only two choices we ever get. In the moments of acceptance, of moments of freedom, and the moments of resistance, of moments of suffering. But thank you, anyway. Nancy? Liz. 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 I will remember that because my daughter's name is Liz. Thank you. Yeah. I'm Rita. Rita. I'm very happy about that, Rita. So now we do it all together. Everybody, keeping your eyes open. Just everybody with eyes open. You don't have to look at me or anybody. You can look at me. It won't matter. See if you can be looking at whatever you look at and be feeling yourself breathe. doesn't matter. You can feel yourself breathe and see at the same time. You can even think about it at the same time and hear at the same time. Human bodies are so remarkable. We can hear and see and feel and smell and taste and think all at the same time. Particularly the breathing. You can feel your belly move. 
Oh, you chest. One of my friends said that the principal, most wonderful thing he had ever heard from any of his teachers as an instruction was someone said to him at some point, whatever you do, don't leave your body. Uh, it's a, that's another one of those ambiguous kinds of instructions for me. Uh, I understand the instruction, I, I, and I understand why it was meaningful to... Uh, I think it was Gil that, whose teacher told him that. Uh, and uh, so I feel it and I use it even though I feel most of the time quite sure that there isn't an I who's in my body. Or I'm not sure that I'm in my body any more than I'm out of my body. But that's, a, that's another whole level of <laughs> thinking about it. Um, I, you know, I could translate it as whatever you do, stay in touch with this. So, or if you want to take out all the personal pronouns, what's ever happening, keep awareness of this. Maintain awareness of this. Um, I think that's actually tremendously true. Maintain awareness of the body. What else happened for you? Yeah. Thank you for reminding us of that. Oh, that's a, thank you for reminding me about that. That's a great instruction, you know. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh used to be the only person who said that. And uh, it turns out to be such a potent instruction. I try to remember to say it all the time, and... When I do, many people often say how helpful it is. And in the very beginning, when Thich Nhat Hanh would say, you know, smile, people would object and they'd say, look, you know, if this is about telling the truth, I'm in the middle of a very, really, a very difficult time in my life. I'm not happy. Uh, this is supposed to be about telling the truth. And he'd say, you're not saying that you're happy. You're just smiling, uh, you know that. Uh, you know that. <laughs> that <laughs> and it's two separate things, you know. That. So first of all, you notice when you sit, as soon as you smile, your body feels more relaxed. You just uh, if it means anything at all for me to smile when I am unhappy, and I do that when I can remember to. I hope I do that every time I can remember to. And I'm not in that place. I remember that that is a possible place for me to be. And so it's a way of recognizing to myself, I'm not pleased now. I'm not content, but I could be. Contentment is a possibility for human beings. That, I think, is a really great insight of everything that peace is possible in this very life, in this very body, in these very relationships, in this very world. That's the third noble truth. And all we need to do is every once in a while have one inkling of that. It's a possibility. Before we fix the whole world and get it all right, 
that our hearts will be able to rest in them and say, you know what? This is really the equanimity reflection. All individuals are heir to their own karma. It's a lawful cosmos. There are all kinds of things happening on this planet right now that if we had a choice, we wouldn't have happened. Someone came along and said, you want anything fixed up? You got a big list? I mean, it's a big list of things that have to get fixed up. So when people said in the very beginning days of my practice, they said, it's all perfect. I would sit there, I had anything but equanimity. I can remember an experience, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago at least, 1970, maybe 69, Ramdas in the College of Marin, uh, gym, zillions of people there saying it's all perfect and <laughs> just feeling so beside myself. It's not perfect. Look what's wrong. This is wrong, and that's wrong, and the other thing is wrong. It took a long time for me, I think, to understand that it isn't all the way we wish it were, but it's all lawfully the only world it can be, given the degree of greed and hatred and delusion that's still present, And there's a possibility that there could be less if the degree of greed and hatred and delusion will change. And so intention to purify one's own heart seems to me the completely correct and only response to it. So perfect doesn't mean we like it. Perfect means it's lawful. One little thing to say here about being, being with anybody, not just being a therapist, but being with anybody who's in a difficult time. Being with yourself when you're in a difficult time. It's maybe the hardest. To <laughs> being with yourself in a difficult time. The, the understanding of karma, the, every individual is heir to their own karma, that what's happening now is the only thing that can be happening now, given what's happened. That sometimes when really bad things happen, we think to ourselves, "Why me? No, why not? Or why now? Because now is when all of those causes and conditions came together." Think about all kinds of story. Every single story that you think about becomes a karma story of uh, uh, going back to um, <coughs> what Fran, Ju- Julie, Jules, and Fran said early this morning about having the kind of mind that doesn't make an opinion about is this a good or a bad thing because you really don't know. I've been so struck all this last several months, probably you have too if you live in Marin, with the story of um, the young girl from Tiburon who was killed in January, I think, of this year, January, 
by a car that rode up on the sidewalk in Santa Barbara, where she was going to school as a freshman. And um, how apparently random that was. person driving the car in a very distraught mind state, apparently purposely driving the car up on the sidewalk. But I was thinking about the circumstances under which that young girl, um, do you know that just finished? And there's a way to turn it over and I don't know how to do it, thanks. I was thinking about, uh, you probably have to, how many people here have children who got at one time or another an acceptance to a college that they wanted to go to? You get hysterically happy, you know, they really wanted to go, and here came the acceptance, and they're so pleased, and you're so pleased. And in that moment, you know, because I had lots of other thoughts about that, very sad experience, but I thought to myself, probably six months before that young girl had gotten her acceptance letter, and she'd been so thrilled, probably, and probably her family as well, about what a good thing, I got into Santa Barbara. And had she not gotten into Santa Barbara, she would have thought, what a bad thing, didn't get into Santa Barbara. And then she went to Santa Barbara, and here this happened. Now, that, that the getting into Santa Barbara is only one piece of it. You know, she could have gotten into Santa Barbara and not been out on the street that day, or could have gone to Santa Barbara and he could have been driving down another street, or he could have driven down that street three minutes later. That the the karma of things is so complex that everything would have had to happen differently, or could have anything could have happened differently for any single event not to happen. When you think about that, it, it, when I think about that, it blows me away. I think to myself, it's really probably my most staggering awareness when I really get it, that everything is so incredibly beyond what we could possibly figure out because of this, then that. There's a way in which we think, if only, you know, sure that, I'm guessing that that child's parents thought, if only, if only she'd gotten into another college, if only she'd stayed home that afternoon, if only this or if only that. We do it, probably many of us, in times of our lives when we feel um, demoralized. Our lives are not particularly gratifying at a certain time. We think, oh, if only I'd learned to be something else, or I'd studied something else, or I'd become a um, pharmacist, or a flutist, or a farmer of organic foods, or who knows what. If only I had done that, then I would be happy. 
because you don't know what could have happened to you on the way to becoming that, or what would have been the sequelae of coming that. You know, we don't know anything really about anything, but we keep making views. <laughs> if I had done that, I would have been happy. Uh, or I would have been sad. We don't know that either. We don't really know anything about anything. But we keep deciding, as if we do, and then feeling bad. As opposed to, and this is really what came up in uh, Jules and Fran saying, you know, maybe, and, and somebody else over here, I can't remember who, said maybe it's not... Um, about what's right or wrong, but what needs to be done right now gets to be the only thing that makes any sense. Because what would have been the right or the wrong or the good, or it was a good thing, it was a bad thing. We've, we'd start out, we start out today with all those Zen stories. You surely know the one about the farmer. You do know the one about the farmer. Well, we have to do the one about the farmer so you will feel fully indoctrinated into the whole thing. Once upon a time, there was a farmer who had a, also a Zen story, who had a horse, and so he was considered fortunate, and his horse ran away, so everyone said, how unfortunate. And three days later, it came home, having brought with it a wild horse that it found while it was gone. So everybody said, how fortunate. Now he has two horses, and he can really plow, because otherwise you have to use a wood plow and push it. And... Uh, the next day, the farmer's son went out to uh, train the wild horse and got thrown off and broke his leg. And everybody said, how unfortunate, because now he doesn't have his young son to help him around the farm. But the very next day, the emperor's army came through conscripting for uh, a war it was on the way to wage. But uh, they couldn't draft this young man because he had a broken leg. So they said, how fortunate. So he stayed home, but then there was a drought. So they said, how unfortunate, because the crops failed and they had to mortgage the farm. But So he had no place to go, so he moved into a monastery and became enlightened. So you don't know. <laughs> so uh, I suppose it's an equanimity story, but you just don't know. Because when you say, woe is me, you don't know if it's woe. You just know, all, really, all you know is it's me. <laughs> and it isn't actually me. So <laughs> probably it's more like, woe, it's happening. <laughs> but you know what? I think that's it. Because if you do, woe is me, then you, you suffer. If you do, woe, it's happening. It's like a magic picture show, and it's all amazing. And then it's just an extraordinary experience. Life is amazing. There's nothing you can say other than it's amazing. And that really is, uh, I think, what saves the mind from um, falling down on itself, from despair. I think... If we only saw the amount of suffering in the world, we couldn't do it. That's, there has to be a certain amount of awareness of the fact that it is a magic picture show. Really amazing. That keeps us in the game. I remember, uh, this, is, this was before, before when I said, uh, 
uh, I had a certain response to run through by a sword and why I didn't want that to, why I didn't exactly relate to it without batting an eye. I certainly hope that when it comes time for me to die, I do it with a certain amount of um, uh, non-struggle. But I don't want to be indifferent to it. I hope I'm in a place where I can say, um, all right, if it's my time, it's my time. But I really would have liked to hear the news tomorrow, you know. <laughs> I want to know if they made the peace treaty or developed the vaccine for cancer or what my grandchildren are doing. It's just interesting, this whole... When uh, my father was quite sick, near the end of his life, he was not a depressed man. But at some point, the series of events in his life had piled up and there were a lot of very... Um, unfortunate things happened, or sad things happening, and he was really quite more depressed than I remembered him being. And he lived nearby me, but not with me, and on one particular occasion he was leaving to go back to his apartment. And I was a little worried, and I said, uh, you know, Dad, uh, you really look depressed to me. And he said, well, I am depressed. And uh, I said, uh, should I worry about you? You know, which is which is a, it's a sort of uh, the, the uh, uh, psychologists, the people, the mental health professionals here will know that should I worry about you is kind of a way of saying, uh, are you going to do anything bad to yourself? Um, how worried should I be about you? I said, so, Dad, should I worry about you? And he said, if you worried about my doing something to myself, he said, don't worry about me. He said, I would never do anything to myself. He said, because I'm always interested. He said, he's, he said I never went out of a movie in my life. He said, I always want to see what's going to happen next, you know. Could get better. So, now, the truth is, the truth is that some people do go out of the movie before the end. So I, I don't want to say that too casually. You probably, all of you, know somebody who exited the movie before the film was over. So I am really cognizant of the fact that for some people it's not possible to stay in the movie. It's too hard. But, and, and not for reasons of moral failing, for sure. Just, I really think it must be terrible, the mind that says, I cannot stay here another minute must be a really, really bad mind state. I think, I don't know how it works that we become so overwrought and depressed that we can't stay. But I think that we stay as long as we do because there's an admixture of being seduced by the world. It's so interesting. At the same time that we're always challenged by it. It's an interesting uh, balance where we're challenged by it all the time to get up and do another day and seduced to stay in it. I, um, oh, we're a little bit off our timetable, but we'll move it up a little bit. I was uh, coming home from a trip recently and uh, was in the airport in, uh, was in an airport in Newburgh, New York. And a woman sat down next to me in the boarding lounge. 
um, a young man in his 20s, who I assumed was her grandson, installed her next to me. And he said, uh, stay here, Grandma, I'll get you a Pepsi. And uh, went off, and uh, she's just sitting there, and uh, looking straight ahead of her, kind of perched on her chair a little bit. So I, I said, uh, are you looking forward to this flight? And uh, she said, not too much. And uh, she says, only the second time I've flown. And uh, she told me that she had come there two days before. I asked her why she'd come. And she'd come for her granddaughter's wedding in Chicago. She had come from Chicago, was going back to West Virginia, and she's just making a change in Newburgh. And, um, we talked about the wedding and how beautiful and how lovely. And uh, I asked her whether her son or her daughter was the parent of this grandchild. And she said uh, it was her daughter, but her daughter had died a decade before of uh, stomach cancer. And uh, I said, was that, the, was that the most difficult thing that ever happened to you in your life? Because often it is when a child dies. And she thought about it a little bit. And she said, no, my, the, when my first husband died, it was worse. And um, I thought about, I, I had a lot of respect for the fact that she could reflect about degrees of worse. It was a reasonable question for her. Was that the worst? No, it wasn't the worst. This was, it was bad. This was worse. And then she told me about her other children and uh, a son who had been born, still born, and another one who had died after Vietnam, and her one remaining child. And not, not in a, in a, just in a regular, plain tone of voice. What was amazing about the conversation is that in less than 10 minutes, the major grief of a lifetime, just talking about it in an ordinary way, like it's ordinary. That was, that was extraordinary about the conversation, is that it was so ordinary. And um, what did I ask her? I said to her at some point, um, are you a religious woman? And she looked at me and she said, I do the best I can. <laughs> I, I love that. That's the right answer. So I said, does your church hold you up? And she said, um, they do, but really the truth is I have very good neighbors. I talk to my neighbors. And uh, her grandson came back and got her, so they called the flight, and so they got up and left and saw them walk off. And you know, you touch somebody's life, you know, you're never going to see them again in their whole life. And in the meantime, I look on this side of me, and there's a person over here just getting himself together and picking up his hand luggage and walking off. And I realized that if I had talked to him instead of her, I would have had a whole other story of pain and woe and beauty and happiness and good fortune and bad fortune. And everybody's walking around in the middle of a universe of 
this child is still born and this child died from Agent Orange and the band was wonderful yesterday and this great wedding cake and the bride and groom are beautiful and everybody's got their package of stuff and it's a different package if you turn right, if you turn left and I have my own package because I could tell my own story of A and of B. And we still, I looked around, that everybody keeps gets, gets up and goes on to the next plane, you know. We just keep on going. It's amazing about human beings. And it's something about the ability to hold in balance that admixture of wedding cake and was a good band uh, and enough of the ability to see that to hold the other stuff from completely capsizing the mind or doing it in, that somehow the mind has to be big enough to hold everything in it. There was a, uh, um, I, I guess I read it or someone told it to me just a couple of years ago, that Václav Havel had said that the definition of hope was the ability to say no to whatever was right in front of you. Funny to listen to for a while, but what I what I assumed that that meant was that there could be something right in front of you that was really dreadful, but and the ability to say no to it didn't mean no, this isn't here. After all, this is the practice of telling the truth. But no, this isn't the only thing in the world. There is this, and. There is wedding cake and good bands and uh, jazz and the MBA and next year's Academy Awards and whether or not there's going to be a cure for cancer and who is left, not who is gone. That this is what's, what's here and which has captivated the mind in the way of um, startling events hasn't... Um, paralyzed it. Maybe this is the place where we're going to stop and talk about practice again a little bit more. I think what happens with the mind is that we're, with, with the whole of the physiology, which, all right, let's call it mind. Let's talk Buddhist type, Buddhist language. I think what happens is we get startled. We get just really frightened. And when we get startled in a self-preservation kind of a way, our whole attention gets captivated with what's right here. And it should. It, it, it motivates us to be able to make all those right decisions in the moment. Um, let me see if I have an example of this. I have a friend who uh, is spending this year, it's a sabbatical year, in uh, Jerusalem. She'll be back uh, next month in July. She's there with her husband and several children, and they settle down in a suburb of Jerusalem and going to school and having a very good year. But of course, it's a very difficult year to be there. Um, two weeks ago, her husband had a very severe cardiac crisis. Had to go to the hospital, had to have um, very complex surgery. He's recuperating. He'll be well. 
he said for the 24 hours after he suddenly had this attack, uh, she was alone with him when he had this attack, he said suddenly the whole mind pulls in and you don't know about anything else. You could be in Israel, you could be in the moon, you could be in Indianapolis. The fact that there are this politics or there's things going on outside of you, you forget. You forget everything except 911 and where you live and what to do next and what to do next and what to do next. And the physiology of uh, shock is it really helps you get to that. You know who to call, what to do, how to get your children taken care of. You don't even know that you're frightened, she said. I didn't know that I was frightened until three days later when he was all right. Then I suddenly realized that I'd been terrified. Don't even let yourself know anything about anything. So the whole mind closes in appropriately so that under siege you can do whatever it is that you need to do. It seems to me that maybe what we try to do, or need to do, or are equipped to do, and are lucky when we can do it, is, is once we are finished being frightened, if we can relax all over again and go back to where we were over time, and see the rest of what's happening, and not have what happened to us, so lock us into a place of fear, or so color what's out here that, we, that we're not able to hold it all in some balance again. I think it's a very important point that somebody brought up earlier, that equanimity does not mean calm, doesn't mean tranquility. It means the ability to have every range of emotional response um, and to hold it, to make a space big enough. And the, the, when the sense is that the space of the mind has narrowed in on a certain task, eventually to be able to come back and say, okay, that happened. Now I'm here. But it could happen again. Anything could happen again. That could happen again, but that could not happen again. A car could ride up on the sidewalk. The truth is, it's all very fragile. If we walked around and told each other all the time how fragile it was, I, would, I almost thought to say we'd all stay home, but staying home is no guarantee. <laughs> you know, we could stay home and have an earthquake. You know, that you, you really don't know. I remember years ago, Having been told a story by my friend uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachta, so it remains such a good story. He said, um, if you go into a movie with somebody and you sit down and the movie starts and it's a horror movie, you have to be pretty old to have seen Janet Lee in Psycho. Did you see Janet Lee in Psycho? <laughs> he said, but anyway, in in the first two minutes of the movie, she gets killed in a shower in some hideous way, stabbing, I think. And uh, he said, uh, imagine you go to a movie and it's psycho, and uh, in the first two minutes, Janet Lee gets stabbed in the shower, and it's horrible, and you say to your companion, this is horrible, I, you know, let's leave. And the companion says, no, no, you know, I'm frightened, I need to leave. And the companion says, no, no, sit down, it's only a movie. 
You say, oh, okay. And then you sit back down. Then the companion at 30-second intervals taps you on the arm and says, Psst, it's only a movie. Keep in mind, it's only a movie. It's only a movie every 30 seconds. By and by, you say, shh, I can't enjoy it. You know, that in between, it's only a movie and being terrified is where we live. You know, that... <laughs> And how, you know, somehow to work out a way to live in the world so that it is only a movie. But if we didn't believe it, how would we be passionate about it? You have to cry at the end of Gone with the Wind. The cry at the end of Exodus. You cry predictably. Uh, there's, a sci- there's, there's one scene in the film Gandhi. Do you know the film Gandhi? You have the video? I own the video. There's one place where I will cry. I've seen it a number of times with my grandchildren. Do you know where you cry in Gandhi? Where the reporter is calling up and shouting over the telephone the news back to London for the morning papers in London and wave after wave of nonviolent resistors are facing the troops that are firing on them, and they get fired on, and the next wave comes. And it makes me cry to tell you, and here's this person shouting on the telephone, and he's saying, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, India is free. And your hair stands on end, and you cry, because it's such a testimony to the human um, impulse to be free. And then we want to watch the movie again and again and again, even that we'll cry because of the, it, it matches our sense that there would be a cause and the cause is freedom so much greater than our own personal lives that there's something much more meaningful than our tiny little story and that calls us to that. Some admixture of being able to see the pain of the world, who died and who got sick and which husband died and which other husband in Agent Orange and stillborn and wedding cake and ministers and marriages and to somehow hold it all in the same mind and to be able to say no to any particular part that threatens taking over the whole of it so that you get to have a mind that's big enough to hold all of it. What else happened to you while you were sitting? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-
See, the, 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 I, 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 let's, let's actually take out two words from that, Liz, and leave it for later to think about, because I think that's a very nice way of saying, very good way of putting it, that when we get stuck on any one experience or more and use it to define our lives, then we hold ourselves captive by one particular aspect of our life. Something happened to us. Um, but a zillion other things happened to us as well. Now, it's not to minimize the effect of uh, uh, traumatic experiences. They really do affect us in some way. But everybody here, therapist or not therapist, knows that the same traumatic experiences affect some people more than other people. It's not, it's not equally. Sometimes when you hear a terrible story, some people say, walk away from a terrible experience, and they say, phew, what a terrible experience. I'm so glad that's over. Now I continue. Other people, the same terrible experience, and it really takes a long time to process. We all have different metabolisms. I don't know how that works. But maybe, uh, maybe it's the work of uh, meditation, or the hope of meditation, and maybe it's partly the hope of psychotherapy. This is going to be one of these places where we can make a, 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 a connection between them. Huh. I think I can. One of the things that happened to me, I have to back up. One of the things that happened to me in my life is I became a, uh, a psychotherapist before I started my meditation practice. I was 40 when I started to do meditation practice. Uh, and I was 30 by the time I was a therapist. And uh, so, and I also had had some serious years of my own personal psychotherapy before becoming a, a therapist. And um, I had thought, I, I didn't think I was perfectly well ironed out, that there was nothing left, no glitches in my psyche. Um, but I certainly thought that the, the issues of my life I had more or less, so to speak, dealt with. I wonder if we ever, actually. We used to call, call it work through. I don't know what ever gets worked through. I think it gets more and more familiar, but... I, I, I don't know if we erase, actually. But anyway, I thought I had. And then I went off and began to do some serious uh, meditation practice. And as I became more serious and was spending more time doing meditation practice, especially on retreat, I began to have experiences of um, feeling, here's the movie metaphor back again, that I had wandered into a movie theater and gotten strapped into a seat and uh, couldn't leave the movie. I was being obliged to see a retrospective of horror films of my life, and uh, over and over again. And I, 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 this will have a good end, because otherwise it would be a very poor advertisement for coming to do meditation practice. <laughs> but this is just the truth. It's a little bit truth in advertising. It doesn't work another way. You have to do it this way. If you're going to be serious about it, if you sit long enough, everything comes out of there. Some stuff that you uh, 
didn't know was in there at all, and sometimes people are very startled by what they discover, and some stuff that you did know was in there, but that you thought you had worked through, or that you knew ad nauseum and didn't want to know any more about, and that was back in full color. And um, I, I, I was dismayed, in fact. I, I wasn't sure, I, I didn't think, I didn't expect it, and I was dismayed. And what I discovered, in fact, after some time, is that my experience was not the same as it had been in therapy years before. That, uh, in fact, here were the same stories and the same recollections, and I think the same affect. But I, and I certainly felt the affect. It wasn't as if I remembered the story, but my heart was so calm that it was nothing to me at all. I felt the affect in a quite a strong way. But I think what I knew is that around the story and the memory and the affect, there was something of a space of balance in which it was being held. I was, after all, sitting on my Zafu for hours as these movies were playing. I wasn't having a good time there, but I was there. And and by and by a bell would ring and I'd go take a shower and have dinner. I'd, you know, that there was there was something uh, of a stable context in within which these stories replayed and replayed and replayed. And my sense of them, and it's been confirmed by other people's experience as I sit with them in their meditation experience, is that I think it's a way of... Uh, the further culmination of working with post-traumatic stress, and so it works it out a little bit more so that it becomes more, less startling to the mind when it comes up. It's another level of working through. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.